Good morning, everyone. It's a joy to be with you this morning, especially our Lahiri weekend. We had a service day yesterday dedicated to Lahiri, and it was such a joy to have us all up at the retreat serving together. I'm Nayaswami Krishnadas. This is Nayaswami Mantra Devi. And we want to welcome all of you here and those online. Today's topic, Victory Demands the Courage of Conviction. I'll be reading from Rays of the One Light, written by Swami Kriyananda. Truth is one and eternal. Realize oneness with it in your deathless self within. The following commentary is based on the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda. Jesus Christ said in the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 10, Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. He that findeth, that is to say, that clingeth to his life shall lose it. And he that loseth, in other words, that giveth up his life, for my sake shall find it. God tests the firmness of our faith. The sword described here is the sword of discrimination. The struggle, Jesus describes, is not a war against unknown enemies, but the struggle with our own attachment to all that is nearest and dearest to us, humanly speaking. Ultimately, it is a war against the ego itself and against anything with which we surround ourselves to bolster the ego's fragile sense of security. When Yogananda, as a boy, fled to the Himalayas to embrace a life of solitary meditation, he was apprehended by his older brother, Ananta, and brought home again. At a certain point, before he would accept defeat, he whispered to his friend, Amar, his companion on the flight, let us slip away when opportunity offers. We can go on foot to Rishikesh. But Amar, whose brother had accompanied Ananta, had turned pessimist, disclaiming any, attention, any intention of continuing their adventure. Yogananda's memorable comment on Amar's refusal was, he was enjoying the familial warmth. The spiritual warrior rejects the familial warmth. Rather, he claims the whole universe as his home. As the Bhagavad Gita puts it in the 14th chapter, unaffected by outward joys and sorrows, or by praise and blame, 
secure in his divine nature, regarding with equal gaze a clod of mud, a stone, and a bar of gold, impartial toward all experiences, whether pleasant or unpleasant, firm-minded, untouched by either praise or blame, treating everyone alike, whether friend or foe, free from the delusion that, in anything he does, he is the doer. Such an one has transcended nature's triune qualities. Thus, through Holy Scripture, God has spoken to mankind. Om, Om, Om. So I too would like to welcome you to Sunday service. It's a joy to be with you here today. So this subject, victory demands the conviction of our, the courage of our convictions. Okay, that's, that's a, a real important subject to talk about actually. And, but I'll start out with, um, people go about their convictions in different ways. Some people circle around until they finally land on what they wanna do. Other people jump right in and get busy doing things. But I saw a cartoon that, that um, showed one of these ways. There was a man, he was sitting in his armchair at home and he had the TV clicker in his hand. And he said, saying to his wife, he said, well, my doctor told me to start my exercise routine very slowly. So today I, rode, I drove past a store that sold sweatpants. So, you know, it's like sometimes we do that. We circle and circle. When are we going to start working on our convictions? But I was thinking about this subject, and uh, I could see it goes into four parts. One, deciding what we want to be victorious about. Two, what are our convictions, deciding on them. Three, following through with them and having the courage to stand behind our convictions, and for attunement and devotion. So the first one is descending, what do we want to be victorious about? Well, here at Ananda, we're pretty clear about the overreaching convictions that we have. We want to find God. That's really what we're focused on. And I think there are very few places, very few communities for sure, and even ashrams in India that are so focused as we are at Ananda, and that's all due to Master and Swami, that they keep, have over and over again brought us in line with what we want. But we've circled around, we've circled around that sweatpants store so many times, and we've been coming around to it, and. Uh, how many times have we just been totally consumed by our lives and those roles that we've been in? And I think a lot of you can um, identify with me with non-identifications of the roles that we've been in. I know when I grew up, I'm, I hung out with my friends, but I didn't always 
identify with the things they thought were real. And then when I didn't really identify with being a student and then really going to college or university wasn't interesting to me. And a career wasn't interesting to me. And so I traveled a bit, I got into Hatha Yoga, and then I came to Ananda. And that is what interested me. And at that point, um, I knew that, okay, now I can put my energy into something because this is something that I believe. Whereas um, before, it just wasn't there. And so even here at Ananda, okay, all the roles that we play and all the roles I've been in and um, identifying with them, you can't really. I mean, I've been called many titles, you know, a minister, teacher, counselor. Um, I've been a mom, I've been a wife, but even being a mom, I never identified really with that. I love my little child, I loved him dearly, but I never felt like a mother. And, you know, a wife, what is a wife? I live with my best friend. What, what is a, a minister or a teacher or a counselor? You're sharing the teachings and we're being with people. And through all that, what I really identified with is friendship and the vows, the vows that we've taken. And even an Ayaswami vow, that is my personal covenant with God. So it's not like it's a role. You're not given a role because you're an Ayaswami. It's just that that is what you're trying to do in your life, is you're trying to keep your consciousness focused towards God with the realization that that is the only purpose of life. And so we're all headed that direction. And, but even if you're not so focused on that, all the teachings that Master has given us will help us be victorious in anything that we want to do. You know, what is your interest? What, what is it that you want to be victorious about? And um, Swami has talked about in, um, actually what I'm referring to now is uh, during one of the Kriya blessings, Maria said a quote from the Bhagavad Gita and um, thanks Sagar for kind of following up on it because it was so perfect for today. And what Swami says in it is, he, he says, um, wise is he who when the chance comes to seek God, seizes it with both hands. And what person in his right mind, once he knows that the goal of life is the realization of God, would want to risk a renewal of ignorance in yet another body before good karma awakens in him to the understanding that what he really wants in life is God alone. Unless a person is already highly advanced spiritually, the likelihood of getting caught to such an extent that extrication becomes difficult, even if possible, is simply too great. Think of the weeping mothers, life after life, scolding wives, domineering husbands, wayward children, and outraged neighbors, all of them um, conspiring to hold one to the wheel of rebirth. Reincarnation for any reason other than as a free soul to return here to help others is a cause for deep regret. So 
it, it's really time, you know, we, we do this over and over, life after life, and it's time now to really get down to business. And so we have to decide, the second one, decide what are our convictions. And um, there, again, you know, most of our convictions are actually rather small. It's not in like it said in the reading, you know, it's dealing with ourselves, the small things in our life, our habits, our, our attitudes, all the things that we need to keep working on to keep ourselves going forward. So when we, have, when we decide on our convictions, maybe it's something to do with a habit, an attitude, maybe we're dealing with our body, maybe we have a disease, maybe we are going through the cure for a disease. Um, all those things, it's, it's like our, what is starting to test our convictions is when we find that, well, one thing with your convictions, and I want to make this point, because I think it's very helpful that when the results of following through with your convictions is greater than, let's say, the habit that is giving you pleasure or the attitude that you're in, when the reward is more pleasurable, then that's when you're going to be successful. You see, it, um, just a little example. I remember one time I quit eating sugar for 10 years. And why did I do that? Because I found that the result of that was much more enjoyable than the other. Because when I ate sugar, I would get a headache, my energy would fluctuate up and down. I would, um, you know, it wasn't a pleasant experience. And of course I enjoyed it, but I found that abstaining from it gave me better pleasure. And so that's just kind of an example of how we progress on that. And then I started eating sugar again, and then I went through, you know, do I feel good? Does this make me feel good? And then I quit eating it again. And, and you know, it's like you, you go through the cycles of it. But so, the third one is following through on our convictions. And that is when they're tested in the cold light of day, because a conviction means nothing unless it's acted on, right? All it is is a thought in your mind. So you can sit in the armchair thinking about your exercise program for a long time, and nothing much is going to happen. So we have to then follow through on it. But when do we follow through on it, really, most of the time? I mean, most of our convictions, as I said, are pretty small. It's not like we're being thrown to the lions and it's a matter of life and death. Well, on the other hand, it is a matter of life and death because you, if you don't act on your convictions, then you won't progress as far as you want. So we want to get as far as we can in this life when we do die. So we need to act on them now. But then sometimes what really happens is that they are tested when there is something important happening. I want to tell you two stories to illustrate this. And one was there was in the university in South Carolina, there was a professor of um, philosophy, 
who was an adamant atheist, and he taught a required course. So everybody had to take his course. And so in, in the classroom, there would be 300 people at a time. And he um, would spend the whole semester, three months, proving that God couldn't exist. And nobody much ever argued with him. A few people would a little bit, but his, his logic was so impeccable and so well thought out and so forceful that most of the time nobody said much of anything. And so this went on for 20 years. And at the end of every semester, he would do the same thing. He would say, now, if anybody still believes there is a God, stand up. And nobody would stand up. And he said, because anybody who f believes in God is a fool. And if God could uh, prove himself, then he would stop this piece of chalk from breaking when it hits the floor. But he can't even do that. And so at some point, a freshman enrolled. And he was a young man, and he was a Christian. He had a very, very deep faith in God. And he was really worried, because he had heard about this professor. He'd heard about what the professor did on the last day of the class. And so every day during that three months, every morning he prayed to God. He said, God, give me the courage to stand up. Give me the courage not to care what anybody says and um, to stand up against this and to prove my faith and prove that my faith is strong, I hope. And so semester went on. At the last day, true to form, the professor said, if there's anyone in this room that believes in God, stand up. And the young man stood up. And all 300 people looked at him. <clears throat> and the professor said, you fool. If God exists, then he will keep this piece of chalk from breaking when it hits the floor. And he started to drop the, the piece of chalk, and it slipped out of his fingers, and it hit the cuff of his shirt. It hit his shirt. It hit his pants, rolled down his pants. It landed on his shoe, and then rolled off onto the floor, unbroken. And the professor just his jaw dropped, and he was, he, then he looked at the young man, and he ran out of the lecture hall. <laughs> so the young man got up, and he went to the front of the room, and for half an hour, he shared with 300 students his faith in God. So that's, he had the courage. He stood up. Now, there's another part to that. That's not only courage to your convictions, but I was thinking about this. So why did that happen then? It didn't happen any other time. Because nobody was praying. Nobody was asking God for, the, for his help. I mean, there for sure would have been other Christians in that class. But nobody was praying as that young man was praying. Because, you see, God doesn't help us unless we ask. You have to ask first. He's very, very polite. He doesn't want to barge into your life. He doesn't want to take over. He doesn't want to make you do anything. No, instead, 
He waits until you ask. And so that was what was happening is there was, that young man was asking with great, great fervor and God came, God proved himself. So see, that's what we need to do all the time, keep that in mind. And another story that is, is really touched me was um, a, there was a Kenyan runner in a race, and it was a big, important race, and his name was Abel, Abel, Abel Mutai. And he was running in the race, and he got almost to the end of the race, and he got confused, and he thought it was over, so he stopped. Now, there was a runner behind him, and his name was Ivan Fernandez, and he saw what was happening, so he started yelling at Abel, you know, keep going, keep going, it's not over. And Abel didn't understand Spanish, didn't know what was going on. So Ivan pushed him and pushed him to the finish line, and he finished. And then later a reporter was interviewing Ivan, and he said, why did you do that? And Ivan said, well, you know, it's my dream to sometime have um, a community-type life where we not only push ourselves, but we help other people. And the reporter said, well, yes, but why did you let him win? And he said, he had won. The race was his. I, if he hadn't stopped, there's no way I could have closed the gap between us. But he stopped, and um, that was a mistake. And the reporter insisted more. He says, yes, but you could have won. And Ivan said, well, what would be the merit of that victory? You know, what would be the honor of that medal? And what would my mother say about it? <laughs> because she had brought him up a certain way. And so, see, his values were so ingrained that it didn't take a lot of decision on his mind. He could have made a different decision and won, but it wouldn't have been the victory. And so then brings us to a fourth point that's very important, and that's attunement and devotion. Because we're not going to find our goal of finding God until we have that attunement and that dedication and that devotion. And Sister Gyanamata is, of course, a sterling example of attunement and uh, devotion to God. And you know, in the last 10 years of her life, she was bedridden. And so she was in, her body had so much pain in it. And she was always pleasant, she was always nice, she was always right there, she would get up even when she could hardly do it and energize, and she would just try to do everything that she could to stay in tune with Master. And one time he came after service, because he did service in you know Hollywood, San Diego, all over the place, and he came to visit her. And he said that he saw in her eyes, no sign of any pain. There was no sign of pain in her eyes, and yet she was so much in pain that she couldn't get out of bed. But she wasn't living that pain. And she said to him, she said, oh, I really liked it when you said such and such and such and such. 
Now this is 1950, there were no cameras happening. There was no internet. And, and he said, oh, you heard that, did you? She was so in tune with him. And he said, she has been in my vibration for a long, long time, many lifetimes. And she just tuned into her guru. He said that the pain she was going with, going through, was actually working out um, karma for other people. And um, he said, she has worked out her karma in her last life and this life. And so when it was time for her to go, um, she was done. She was completely done. And so Master says the way to have success is to do everything with God. Do everything with your guru. Do everything with God however you see God, Divine Mother. And live your life always being with God, doing for God, serving, seeing God through other people. This is the only way that we are going to have success in this. And, you know, St. Francis was a wonderful example in that he um, tuned into Jesus so deeply and he was praying and praying in little the ruins of San Damiano um, Church. And he was praying to a painted crucifix, and it became alive. And Jesus said to him, St. Francis, build my church. Rebuild my church. It's fallen into ruins. And so he mistakenly started to rebuild that little chapel. And it still stands today. And others started to come and help him after a while. But then you think, and then he realized, no, what Christ meant is I need to rebuild the church. I need to rebuild people's faith. And so he started walking around Europe, spreading the teachings. And he and St. Dominic of that time were the two that brought Christianity back to the fore. And so you think, Okay, well, why couldn't Jesus have just told him in the beginning what he meant? But even though he mistakenly tuned into his intuition, that got the energy flowing. And over time, his intuition got deeper and deeper and unerring so that he knew exactly what Jesus wanted for him, Christ wanted for him. So we have to start the process and we have to start wherever we are and keep going, keep going deeper, keep going more. And until we have that joy, because that's really what we're going for, is that joy of God. And I just want to read this from Whispers. I'm going to need my glasses for this. I will broadcast my voice with the chorus of thy songs. With the soft finger touches of my soul intuition, I tuned the radio of my inner perception. At first I caught only the sounds of nearby. Then came a symphony of inner harmony, followed by sweet strains from my heart's orchestra of finer feelings. And then came the swelling chorus of my age-long cravings for thee. All these I caught on the radio of my soul 
as I kept turning my perception, waiting to catch the whispers of thy voice. O guardian angel of all souls, with infinite patience, I went on tuning my radio. At last, when I was almost prepared to give up further trying, thy song burst upon my heart. Oh, let me broadcast through my every word now the chorus of thy songs. And Swami said, he never saw a saint that wasn't joyful. God bless you. Nightingale 